welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, everyone. Buddy C, welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today, we have Sensei. Good to have you, sir. Thank you. Mark, happy to be here. We have Marla and Lou. We will be talking about the 13th verse today from a Zen Buddhist perspective. I'm looking forward to what Sensei has to say, sir. How's things going with your book sales? Everything moving along with your book? Sensei? It's going well. Uh, as far as I know, we just, uh, I just uh, taped or recorded the uh First section, the introduction of the audiobook, and uh, sent it to the publisher to just check it out and give us more direction. They're they're very happy with it. They say it sounds wonderful. And then uh, the second book is uh, there at the publisher, the Razor Blade of Zen, the placing Zen in our in the American culture between the extremes. I, I, I may have sent you the manuscript. I have no, no, sir. You you left me off that list. I, I would love hey, to. Send it. We don't send the manuscript to very many people, but if you'd like to read it, and if you think you might write, want to write a blurb for the cover, you know, I'll send it to you. I'd be honored, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Remind me of it if you don't see it. Oh, I'll remind you. I'll make note of that one. Publisher doesn't want you to send too many of the manuscript out to people. You know, <laughs> it's not. Like I don't know why. Write on the podcast and every anyone else know about it so <laughs> <laughs> and the podcast is going well we've finished out all the uh all the weekly podcasts for this year 2021 and i wrapped up with matsuoka i went through india china japan and then ending with matsuoka after dogen and Kazan and some of the teachers through japan we keep them short like 15 20 minutes at the most try to anyway but the new the new approach in uh, 2022 is going to be more uh, at the intersection of design thinking, creativity, and Zen. A little more current, you might say, and not so much a survey. More contemporary, I guess. Good. I've got links in the episode notes, your podcast, and also a link to BuddyC.org where I have your book listed uh, for sale. So all the books that well, we use here. They're all yeah. there uh, for sale, and then uh, you can see some. They can see some chapters, uh, some verses of, of uh, powerless but not helpless if they want. And a link there. They're getting good uh, good feedback on the the book. Uh, I don't I don't really track the sales personally, but uh, I think if something were happening, I would hear from the publisher. Got a very sweet note from a woman in um, out west somewhere, and she had got my book and she had practiced she'd studied with real early Renzi master. She's in her seventies. And uh she had this she has this quite a quite a resume of practice, but she got a got away from it, got discouraged by it or something. And she said my book has convinced her to start practicing again. So she's very she was very complimentary and happy about it. So that was a sweet letter. I, I like the way your book takes and answers all the questions that people have uh, about. I don't know if it answers all of them, but <laughs> well, it answers all the questions, you know, like, why do I do this? Or what about yep. this? Or all the, 
all the practicality about sitting. Um, yeah. I didn't see any any questions that I had that did not get answered at some point there yeah. about the process or, or people that are especially new. To- everybody sees themselves in that section because every everybody has those excuses. <laughs> yeah, that, it was good. Thank you, sir. All I ask is that you write a review <laughs> for Amazon. <laughs> uh, you know, that's tough for folks because they have to come back and do that later. They can't do that yeah. when they buy the yeah. book. So they have to make a second trip. So. Yes, yeah. if you buy a book on Amazon and you uh, and you like to go back and leave a review, those reviews matter. They matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter how long or detailed they are. It's just uh, if it's a positive review, it counts. Oh, I like your glasses. Oh, thank you. I finally found a place. I bought six pair of these. These are just regular readers. I bought some I like, so I, I bought me a bunch <laughs> of them. So I'm getting old since I buy stuff in volume now and just put them in the drawer. Yeah, there you go. I, I think Diane has bought me at least 10 pairs. They're all scattered all over the place, so I don't have to look for them. <laughs> Verse 13, Sensei. Let's, okay, let's read. Uh, Who's going to read? I'm not going to read. Marlon, will you read for us? Yeah, I guess I can read. Which one would you like me to? Who's? Whose translations? Oh, why don't you read Stephen Mitchell's? Okay. And Verse, yeah, ready? I don't have his. I've got Wayne Dyer and Jonathan Starr. I don't have the Stephen Mitchell version. Hey, why don't we? Um, That's okay, though. I mean, I'll read this while you read that, and then I'll see the difference. Oh, sure. um, success is as dangerous as failure. Hope is as hollow as fear. What does it mean that success is as dangerous as failure? Whether you go up the ladder or down it, your position is shaky. When you stand with your two feet on the ground, you will always keep your balance. What does it mean that hope is as hollow as fear? Hope and fear are both phantoms that arise from thinking of the self. When we don't see the self as self, what do we have to fear? See the world as yourself. Have faith in the way things are. Love the world as yourself. Then you can care for all things. Thank you, Marla. I'll read to Jonathan Starr. Well, that's, that one is very different, by the way. That very different language, choice of terms, you know. It is. I like Stephen Mitchell on this one. Um, on Jonathan Starr, be weary of both honor and disgrace. Endless affliction is bound to the body. What does it mean, be wary of both honor and disgrace? Honor is founded on disgrace and, and disgrace is rooted in honor. Both should be avoided. Both bind a man to this world. That's why it says be weary of both honor and disgrace. What does it mean? Endless affliction is bound to the body. Man's true self is eternal, yet he thinks, I am this body, I will soon die. This false sense of self is the cause of all his sorrow. When a man does not identify himself with a body, tell me what troubles could touch him. One who sees himself as everything is fit to be guardian of the world. One who loves himself as everyone is fit to be teacher of the world. I think you may have a later, earlier translation, because in this one, he doesn't say it when a man, he says the person. 
that's probably a, a revision person, you know, which is more gender friendly. Yeah, he has a woke revision. Since they used to use the term pronoun man, because in those days it, it stood for both male and female. Right, right. We've gotten sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> a little, yeah, not much. <laughs> no, 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 no. He, uh, she, they, them. Since I put uh, Stephen Mitchell's translation in the chat. All right. You wanted to peek at it, it's there. Um, Let me read the one from uh, Wayne Dwyer. Dyer. Favor and disgrace seem alarming. High status greatly afflicts your person. Why are favor and disgrace alarming? Seeking favor is degrading. Alarming when it is gotten. Alarming when it is lost. Why does high status greatly afflict your person? The reason we have a lot of trouble is that we have selves. If we had no selves, what trouble would we have? Man's true self is eternal, yet he thinks, I am this body and will soon die. If we have no body, what calamities can we have? One who sees himself as everything is fit to be guardian of the world. One who loves himself as everyone is fit to be teacher of the world. So the last verse is very similar to, to the one you read. It's, it's odd because the, the translations are so and this starkly different in this one. I've heard uh, the, the bit about uh, failure and success before, but I had it phrased as a question saying, which is more destructive, success or failure? But I don't know if that's this verse or another verse. I would think it's this verse, Sensei. I thought so when, when I first read that. But then when I heard Stephen Mitchell's, he uses those, those words, uh, which are neither, in neither of these translations. But it sounded like the same idea. I, I like his phrase that hope, uh, it says success is as dangerous as failure. Hope is as hollow as fear. Hmm. And uh, I looked at that and I was like, hmm. When I read that a long time ago, an, another translation of that would be that fear and hope are both illusions is another thought that goes along with that, that they're both illusions. Right. right. And when I first read that, I could see how fear was an illusion, but I could not see how hope was. And I see that now. But at first, that was very difficult because they both take you out of the moment, I think, is maybe what's behind that. You're not in the moment when you're in hope or when you're in fear. Yeah, the fear could be unwarranted and the hope could be unwarranted. Yes. In some cases, fear is very tangible and real. You're, you're in danger or something is threatening your family. And fear, um, I think, is like anger. We say anger is not always ego. It's sometimes altruistic or a defensive measure, defensive attitude towards something you want to protect that is valuable, like uh, the life of another person or your own life and so forth. So I think we'd take fear to be the same kind of thing. It's not always warranted, but sometimes it is. And it's not always egotistical or false or con a subject of confusion. It's real. It's and uh, as a basis in reality. And uh, hope would be a little different, I think, because it's, um, as you're saying, it takes you out of the moment and it also 
it's hoping for the the better, you know, something I can look forward to. So it's it's not only taking you out of the moment, but it's sort of trying to live in the future or denig- even denigrating the present in a sense. It, it really uh, interferes with my acceptance of the moment because yeah. Yeah. when I, I remember the, the one thing that I picked up from my Christian background, which I'm glad that I eventually dropped, was this idea that I was to believe and pray for things to be different than they are. Right, right. That kept me in hope all the time, and it kept me out of acceptance. And right, I was right. always never at real peace because things should be different than they are. Right. But once I started accepting the moment for what it is, there was peace there that I didn't really understand. This famous uh, Metasutta attributed to Buddha is very brief. May all beings be happy. Uh, but I think it's important to remember that he wasn't a, you know, rose-colored glasses kind of person. It was more like, may all beings be happy with reality as it is, not not as we might hope it would be or will change to be. Mm-hmm. That's something that we're not taught. We're always taught that things are in, in traditional thinking that uh, we work to make things different, to make us happy. Make it better. Make it better, yes. Yep, yep. Mm. That's good, thank you. And in some cases, you can you can make an argument for that. I don't think it's totally BS when they say uh, striving for a, a better, a more perfect union, you know, politically. Yeah, that's a wonderful ideal and goal. But what you'd have to, you'd have to define what you mean by perfect. You know, that's good. Any any comments, guys? Y'all have anything? Well, you you really enlightened me about the the hope because I I wasn't understanding that either about how that is hollow. But in in some cases, it really is hollow. Like hope for the best. What does that really mean? There was an article a doctor wrote in a column in a newspaper, I think. And she was saying uh, this guy was dying. The patient was dying and there was no hope. You know, there was no, it wasn't going to survive. And at one point she tells him the truth. She said, you you know, it's just, you know, you have to face up to this. You're not going to get out of this alive. You know, it's, it's uh, critical. It's uh, whatever, however terminology. And later, and she was sort of confessing that. And then saying that uh, she didn't have to do that. He didn't want to hear that either. And he wanted to have hope. And she could have gone along with that and let him let him uh, believe, you know, that he was going to survive and then he, w- he would die anyway. It wasn't going to change, in her opinion. Just having the positive mental attitude wasn't going to make him live any longer. But for her, he, she was seeing him as, as an avoidance technique. And she got a lot of pushback from other doctors around this and say, well, but, and it, but some religions would push back against that. And they say, no, no, if you're, if, you're, if you're going to die soon, you need to know. You need to, you need to you know, get right with God. You need to, you need to make amends. You need to, you need to be able to talk to people you need to give your last words to. You need to, you know. It's some and some in some religions it's a it's um 
that would be cruel. You know, but this this person, I guess, was in such denial that that wasn't his religious system, you know, where if I'm going to die, I, I want to know right away so I can spend the rest of what small time I have, you know, taking care of all my bucket issues and so on. And it's not to say you don't work to make things different, but if you, I think first I have to accept things as they are. Yeah, because like you said, I in the past I have used that as an avoidance for accepting the accepting things as they are, because I want them to be so different, so so much that I stay out in that instead of, and and I'm never at peace with it. I'm never at peace. Buddhism kind of has a workaround. It doesn't. Um, it's it's not so. It's like. Um, by the way, some of the comments in here about the eternal self and so forth, the Buddhism would push back against. Um, but um, it's it's a different ethic, you might say, uh, when it comes to others. When it comes to yourself um, and your own death and your own sickness and your own aging, etc., that we all face, uh, of course, um, that's one thing. And you can have a pretty cold hearted attitude, you know, toward yourself and well, get used to it, buddy, you know. Uh, but when it comes to others, it can be unnecessarily cavalier and, and dismissive and so forth. So uh, Buddhism in particular is not meant to be used to criticize others. It's only meant to be used to criticize yourself. And so when you read these highly sound, critical sounding passages from Dogen and others in the past, he's only saying if the shoe fits, wear it. You know, if you see yourself in this picture, uh, and that's called, it's called the Zen mirror. You see yourself reflected in the mirror and actually you see everything reflected in it, good, bad, and ugly. But in terms of um, criticizing somebody else because they don't meditate or because they don't seem as to have your viewpoint, your worldview, that's uh, that's totally non-Buddhist to do that. To do that, and so I think that's that overlaps into this discussion here. Well, that's that's how I've learned from from all of this sensei to, to look for the similarities, not the differences. Uh, I have friends that I've had for years that the only reason we're still friends is because I've learned to do that to look at the things that we're alike rather than. And because I used to always uh, magnify the differences so I could be better than someone or less than someone. Yeah. Uh, it was always comparing. It was never accepting. Yeah. The precepts in Buddhism have uh, the, the second five, which are more for disciples, where you're, you're becoming in service to the community, to the Sangha. And so you have to be more circumspect about, even more circumspect about, criticizing others and so forth. It says, uh, do not praise yourself at the expense of others. Uh, do not uh, discuss the faults of others. You end up having, in social situations, you end up having to discuss the behavior of others, but you don't have to discuss it as their faults. Uh, and that's a fine line to walk. Uh, Lou, did you have something, sir? <laughs> well, I'm hesitant to say it, but, um, there, you know, there's, there's this thing about hope where it's an attachment to something that doesn't exist, right? It's an attachment to an imagined future state. Yeah. And um, the colloquialism 
um, that I've heard is that you can shit in one hand and hope in the other and see which one fills up first. <laughs> you sound like you come from my hometown. <laughs> they have that kind of sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, um, it's, it's an attachment, right? It's an attachment to something that doesn't exist, may or may not. We don't, you know, maybe we don't know, but um, it's... I think it depends somewhat on circumstance, Lou, if I can interrupt for a second. If you, sorry, I'm an artist and uh, we have a show coming up at the gallery after this one closes. So I have a deadline on November 12th. And the year's end show is always uh, for gifting purposes. Uh, you do smaller paintings that cost less. And I'm used to working pretty large scale if you go to the gallery and look at my work that you don't automatically see it but those those pieces are like six by four feet and you know 40 by 60 and they're pretty big for watercolor shadow boxes and I paint on the glass as well as the backdrop so there's something about if I have to skinny down to uh, 30 by 30 or down to <laughs> 16 by 16 you know it's kind of like kids' shoes, you know. Kids' shoes cost nearly as much as adult shoes because they're just as hard to make, even though they're small. And I, I, I'm just going through this sort of agonizing process of trying to get a half a dozen or so pieces to bring to the gallery and just failing on piece after piece. <laughs> and fortunately, the way I work, even though it's watercolor, I can, I can, I can wash them off and start over because I use painted like gesso boards uh, instead of paper and so on. But uh, I have hope you know, <laughs> that I'm going to work my way through this and it's all going to start to work. I'm not sure of that by any means. So I think the kind of hope that is grounded in practicality is not necessarily the kind of hope we're talking about. But the Matsuoka used to talk about heaven, the Christian belief systems. He said, why? Why? spend so much time and energy and, and so forth on, on trying to get to a heaven that may not be there or something like that, you know? So Zen puts his whole focus in uh, this life, this day, this, can't we make this heaven or can't we? Um, so sometimes hope can be um, postponing the inevitable or hope can be trying to live in the future. As you're saying. Now, since I in recovery, we do have a, it said that, and I remember I had hope when I came to the first meeting I came to, I find, I saw people who drank like I used to drink and they were recovering. So I had hope that it would work for me too. Right, so right. That's, that's a different kind of hope that was yep. not hollow. That was a good hope. Yeah. You could also use the word trust. We use uh, like faith in my faith, trust, and hope. You know, those are all sort of in the same kind of category. And faith has this unfortunate uh, layer of uh, blind faith where, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that's an end of it, you know, and, and as sort of an unwillingness to consider alternatives. And then there's uh, trust, which uh, we trust the ancestors that they were not charlatans, including these Taoist ancestors. Why would they try to deceive us? What did they have to gain? You know, 
So you trust the teaching, and, and the opposite of trust or faith is doubt. But in Zen, we say doubt is the feeling of faith. Doubt is how faith feels. If you're exercising great faith, feeling great doubt, you're exercising great faith. Just as if you feel great fear and you still go ahead, you're exercising courage. So courage is not the absence of fear, nor is uh, faith the absence of doubt. In fact, this term, the great doubt, great doubt is what accumulates in Zen practice until everything comes under que into question, everything. And this is the necessary emotional level to get to, perched on top of the 100-foot pole and stepping into the abyss, all those analogies that are used to uh, kind of uh, penetrate through the, this koan of everyday existence. So it's the opposite of blind faith. But we do, tr we do have trust. Trust in mind is one of the old Chinese poems. Mm -hmm. Trust in your original mind. Trust in that you can recover it. And since I use that term recovery about Buddha mind, he said we recover our original Buddha mind. So it's, a, it's akin to recovery in alcoholism and drugs, I think. Lou, you have something, sir? I'm uh, just thinking in terms of, um, you know, some hope. Hope during the day, um, you know, uh, you have certain anticipations and things that you hope for just in a single day. Um, that to me seems different than, um, you know, an attachment to success like they talk in the right. in, on the verse or the, the I've got to be I've got this has got to happen. Um, and there's a seems to be to me a difference in um, hope where there's involvement or engagement as opposed to just a wishful kind of hope yeah. that I'm not willing to put any work into or any self-development into or anything like that. But it's that, that uh, desire that so many have um, for success. <laughs> um, right. But I've been there with the misfortune. I know they go hand in hand. And placing our value on those things too, I think is part of that too, that we, yep. That we're we think we're valuable because of this success, or if this happens, then it will make me happy, kind of thing. Yeah. I think I think Lou hit it there with that. I think yeah. that's the difference, Lou. Yeah, I think that's good. Thank you. Well, what else in this thirteenth verse, Sensei? Now you said that the Buddhists well, approach. Go ahead. No, go ahead. The Buddhists think what? Uh, the approach to uh, the self was. Yeah, you know, man's true self is eternal. Uh, so when you say true self, you're saying something different than soul or ego, or you're saying, you know, the ocean, not the wave kind of thing. And so there would be no pushback on that. But if the idea that your true self is eternal is a source of hope for you, then I think it's misconstrued, or you're misconstruing it. Uh, it's there's it's kind of a puzzle, a koan. Uh, in this body, I will soon die. This false sense of self is the cause of all his sorrow. We do not identify with himself, with the body. What troubles can teach him? Could reach him. Uh, so what that begins to imply is the Atman in India, where you have. The self or this person is really not the body and will survive the death of this body. 
And that's, that's, that's the rub right there. So, um, and Nagarjuna, 14th Patriarch in India, uh, either they were the Masangikas or Prasangikas, I'm sorry, and uh, um, Majamikas or something like that, where, where they make no assertions. So they would hold these uh, debates, public debates, and anybody was welcome to come and debate. And uh, people would come and, and, and defend the Atman and defend the eternal soul and all these other teachings of the time. Buddha, even in Buddha's time, there were lots and lots of sex in public teaching going on. And uh, it was a, like a contest between these various, the war of ideas, you know, was very real. And uh, they didn't have the science and they didn't have the information that we have now. So it was mostly intuition and logic. So um, they would argue, Nagarjuna's bunch would argue that if there is a soul that is self-existent and is eternal, then it would, it would meaninglessly or absurdly have to keep replicating itself. And it could never be capable of change. So it could not even experience birth, death, and so forth. So anyway, the, the, the arguments were logical like that. In Buddhism or Zen, uh, we resort to, do I find any evidence of this in my own meditation? So we say, die on the cushion. And that's meant not so much as a metaphor, as kind of tying into the Zen idea that all of uh, our truth is experiential. Uh, Buddha based his teaching on his direct experience, and he challenged all others to say, well, have you, can you stand up and defend this idea based on your own personal experience? And they would say, no, it's in the doctrine, it's headed down to us. That's where he came up with the anal analogy of the blind leading the blind, which was later repeated in Christianity and other religions. So he he. He took a different approach. He said, I'm, I'm on my own recognizance here. I'm saying, I'm telling you, you know, I don't find any evidence of the so-called Atman in the middle. And the implication is, for him, it all fell apart. And he used the metaphor of the chariot there, all the pieces lying there, where's the chariot, you know. And, and But then it all came back together, and here it is, like a jellyfish, you know. But it's not a, it's not a single person entity here. So... It's a fuzzier logic kind of thing. This this language seems sounds very facile and very. It's meant to be encouraging, I think, but it ends up sounding a little facile in that all you need to do is believe in your eternal self, and that, that starts to sound an awful lot like the Christian soul and so forth. That's where Buddhism would push back and say, "Well, it's not eternal in that sense." <laughs> you know. It's like, yes, everything that is here now has always been here. Everything that is here now will always be here. So, yes, it is eternal, but it's the biggest remix on record. Everything is just being remixed, right? And so the so-called self is that wave that's going to be blended back into the ocean. This idea, Sensei, that, uh, and you touched on it when you made the comment that we die on the cushion. Yeah, that's one of the analogies that we use. The process that we go through in sitting in Zazen is a, a similar parallel to the process of dying, dying to the self, get, letting go, relinquishing attachment to the self and so forth, to this body even. And they mention here the body, you know, if you're 
attached to your body. But we would stop short of saying that means there's an eternal soul that is existent and is the real living entity. But even Buddha said things like that there is impermanence, which is the characteristic of everything. There must be permanence. And his disciples were very glad to hear that. So you have to ask the question, why did that make them happy? But we would not go so far as to say because he was telling them there is an eternal soul. That's not what he meant. This, uh, this is a description of what some would call enlightenment, this last verse, isn't it? That one who sees himself as everything is fit to be guardian of the world. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think if you're if the self in Buddhism, we have the tri, trikaya, three bodies, and we have the three minds, the nurturing, uh, what's the first one? It's... Uh, all embracing it's uh and a joyous mind the, the nurturing mind and magnanimous mind then we have trikaya three bodies we have the nirmanakaya the transformation body we have the dharmakaya the essence or truth body and then we have the sambhogakaya the joy body so you have the joyous mind the joy body and i think these are like um the nirmanakaya is is your the body, this physical body through which Buddhas appear in the world. When, and it's in transformation because it's constantly in transformation. Uh, that's my understanding. And then um, the Dharmakaya, however, is not limited to the Nirmanakaya. The Dharmakaya being the essence body includes everything. It isn't self only, it's self and other combined. Okay. So we're not separate from... We're, we're separate from uh, the rest of reality. Yes, you're not me and I'm not you. Uh, and yet we're connected to it. We're not, we're not separate from a, another perspective. So that, that realization, the mnemonicaya is the necessary birth as a human being to have the capability, the same equipment the Buddha had, the same material to work with, you have to be born as a human being, according to Buddhism. Uh, there are sort of provisions for how other sentient beings come to awakening, but they're really fuzzy logic kind of things. But uh, they're not self-aware enough, and, and they're not conscious enough, typically. We don't know about whales and dolphins you know, elephants and so forth, their, their intelligence is so high that, you know, they may have a different kind of awakening than we have, or self-awareness. Even cows demonstrate self-awareness, they say. So, but nonetheless, human, it's considered not an egocentric thing, like I'm the master of the earth or anything, but it's more like you have this great opportunity uh, at the end of one of Dogen's tracks, he says, you have had already had the good fortune to be born with a precious human body so do not waste your time meaninglessly in other words this is your chance to wake up uh, spiritually so in doing so the nirmanakaya so to speak becomes aware of the dharmakaya this something that is beyond what is my self-constructed definition of self mm -hmm. and in realizing that the Sambhogakaya comes into presence as joy, as a feeling of joy. So you could think, I think of the joy body as kind of like the synergistic 
third new thing that comes out of the union of the first two. But if you go through life completely uh, attached only to the mnemonicaya, you know, eating good food, pleasure, comfort, seeking all of these things, and that's where addiction comes from, right? Um, trying to avoid pain, trying to feel 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 joy, feel feel comfort, feel uh, ecstasy, feel bliss, and so forth. Then uh, you never uh, discover the dharmakaya. And you never have this experience of transcending this body. That's why we sit still for so long. We sit still enough, long enough, reverse adaptation happens or something like that, where, where this becomes a tangible reality. So I think that's kind of the structure that Buddhism offers as sort of a tripartite way of looking at your reality as your consciousness. It has these sort of three dimensions to it. They're not truly separate, but we can we 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 can be completely unaware of it. Like we we call ourselves human beings, and we say we're all endowed with Buddha nature, this ability to wake up, but we don't necessarily know that. Right, right. We're really human doings. <laughs> human doings. Yeah, we're a verb. We're not a noun. <laughs> we haven't got to the B part. Most of us. <laughs> Life is a verb. Yes. Since you have a question, and it, and it's, I think, maybe less esoteric, but maybe connected to what you're talking about. So um, it seems in Buddhism, contrasted with Taoism, that there's maybe more of a sense of community. Um, I'm not sure. Is that, is that true? I think Confucianism sort of took on that role in China. And Taoism does seem pretty cold. You know, I mean, when you look at it, it's kind of talking, it's like more like science is speaking of an objective reality in which everything is being in harmony with the Tao. And if you're not, you're in trouble, you know. Buddhism, Buddhism started out more personal where Buddha's experience of his insight was the whole point, the observer, the objective observer the observer was always part of the equation. It's not like science trying to describe an objective reality absent the observer. Mm-hmm. Being the observer is the whole point, the whole meaning of it. And so I think Taoism is a little more, quote, objective that way, trying to describe reality in spite of, but, but Buddhism is very personal and intimate. It's your, your world is born with you and dies with you. You're the only one who has your world. I guess I was kind of thinking in terms of um, group meditation, um, you know, a community of, of uh, practitioners, those you kinds have, of things. You have that. That's the third leg of the stool. Buddha and Dharma are the first two legs of the stool. And Buddha is Buddha nature, which, uh, frankly, you don't, you don't need community for that. And so we have hermits and we have, uh, you know, people live in caves and, grass huts and so forth. Hermitage is a well-respected tradition. We have Dharma, Dharma studies. Uh, Scholarliness, scholarship is not as highly respected in Buddhism because all of the teachings of Buddhism came out of somebody's direct personal experience. They're not really scholarly teachings, but they they do embrace and include teachings about um 
you know, reality, the, the, the non-dual nature of reality, it sounds like the physics of the time or the, or the biology of the time, even some of the Buddhist teachings and Chinese teachings. And then when it comes to Sangha or community, Buddha had teachings that are called um, prosperity teachings and, and householder teachings about how a husband should treat his wife and how the wife should treat the husband, uh, how they take care of each other and take care of the and, and accumulating wealth and what, what was wealth for, what did you do with it? So a lot of the teachings that are not popularly promoted or read were very down-to-earth practical teachings like that around community. But the, the, the main feature of community that Buddhism established it was to turn away from the caste system and all the powers that be, like Buddha was warrior class, caste. And uh, the Brahmins were the f- uh, first caste, the highest caste, and warriors are next. So I jokingly say, but, you know, there could be some kernel of truth to it, that he was just a draft doctor. He didn't want to be in charge of the military and report to the Brahmins, you know. By the way, if he and seriously though, if he were an untouchable, he probably wouldn't have gotten away with that. He wouldn't have been able to do what he did to set up a whole different order. So that was the community they set up. Set up is more like a design project or the communes they tried back in the '60s. You know, uh, we we don't we're not going to go try to overthrow the government and take over. We're going to set up this other model and see if we can make it work on a different basis, you know. So that's that's the way they approach community as, as really an experiment to see, can we live by these principles instead of those, the caste system and all. Mm-hmm. We have the same issue now. Anything else, Lou? Got it? No, the, the Dharma body made me think of that, and, and uh, so maybe that connection with community. Yeah, the, the Sangha is the... Uh, larger expression of the dharma body as all human beings ultimately and the metta sutra gets into that all beings are part of this all conscious sentient beings and even insent the insentient world preaches the dharma according to buddhism so it's really one big body the whole universe as a cosmology if you will the other aspect of sangha is harmonious community so you may belong to a lot of communities but many of them may not be harmonious, you know, and if they're not, they don't qualify as what we call a Sangha and, and being, and, and maintaining harmony in the Sangha is not easy. It's difficult, really difficult. Yeah. I think we practice that during our uh, meetings, you know, our, our recovery meetings, we practice that a lot. Exactly. And, and in a board meeting, we have boards of directors. We're not for profit corporations and, uh, you know, people can lapse back into human nature. <laughs> That's why we don't aspire to it. We aspire to Buddha nature. You know, Action. You know, we're just people. <laughs> kind of fits with that last, uh, the last little phrase and say, one who loves himself as everyone. Yeah. Fit to be teacher of the world. That's the Sangha. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Meta Sutra starts with you, and there's an actual meditation you can do around it where you try to embrace yourself and forgive yourself or, you know, try to see the reality 
and we're our own worst critics. So try to stop beating up on yourself. It's bad enough that you suffer. You don't have to do double jeopardy. Then embrace family, right? Loved ones. And then the next circle out is uh, friends, associates, colleagues at work, people you know, but aren't, you wouldn't say we're close, you know. And then every ring that you go out is further away until finally you reach those that you really don't like and you don't get along with. Buddha describes suffering and all of its many elements. One was being with people you hate and being away from people from your loved ones was a, is a social form of suffering. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Any, any other comments on that verse, Sensei? From a... It's a wonderful verse. Um, so I think just uh, the first parts about the honor and, and, and uh, disgrace and so forth and affliction uh, bound to the body. He's talking about the social in the first line and then the personal realm in the second line, being attached to your body. So then uh, the first one, the first stanza is about the social level. The second stanza is about the personal level of yourself with your identification, with your mortality, et cetera. And then the third one is where it bridges both of those. So, you know, there's a logic to the structure here as I see it. In my uh, model, which I may have sent you, I don't remember, buddy. I, I did a model. I do a lot of semantic modeling as a design process. I had the personal sphere in the middle, then the social, yeah. then the natural uh, world of nature, and then the universal as right. the con context in which we practice and, and live, you know. So, and, and the boundary, the boundary areas between them is where we have all the friction. Where we have to let go. We have to, have to yeah. die to, I have to die to you. You return to the universal. Yes. And, and that's, that's and like the attachments, like Lou was talking about, yeah. right? Yeah. So if you think of the personal sphere, you're sitting there cross-legged and your knees and your head, they're all in this bubble. You could literally sit inside a sphere. You know, it's like a bubble. And then uh, if you step outside that sphere, whether you're in the Sangha at the Zen Center or you're at your community at home or at work, you're stepping, you're crossing the boundary into the, into the social sphere. It's still personal, but, you know, now there's this more complexity to it. Then when you go uh, out through all the levels, including the political and the national and the international and the all the stuff we see arguing on uh, on the news every day, you go beyond that, you go into the natural world, then you begin to see the effect that all of that mess is having on the natural planet. And then you get into all the climate change and all those issues. And you start to hinge when you get to climate change because it involves the sun and it involves, you know, the solar system. And you're, you're beginning to now you're verging into the universal. And as you go out from the inner to the outer, you have limited amount of impact on those spheres, diminishingly smaller and smaller as you go out. But that's not true on the incoming. The universal comet can hit the Earth, you know, coming from out there in space and destroy all the life on the Earth. So our personal life can be much more strongly affected by the social sphere than we can affect the social sphere. And same with nature. We think we are masters of nature, but what we're learning is everything goes around, comes around. Mama nature ain't happy. Ain't nobody happy, right? Mm -hmm. 
So uh, it's an interesting model to think of vectors going out and spheres of influence going out and then in. And it's really asymmetrical. The imbalance is incredible. That's where you have to have some sort of faith or some sort of confidence. You know, it's, it's startling just that in a full solar eclipse, uh, from 92.5 million miles away, the sun to uh, something like 250,000 miles away, the moon, uh, exactly the disk of the moon exactly fits the disk of the sun. So you can see the, the what's this thing around it called? The nimbus, what's it called? The, you know, the, fi- the flames around the, the atmosphere of the sun. From the point of view of a human being, I six foot off the ground on Earth. (laughs) So in the uh, interfaith panels, like the one from South Korea, it's a world peace kind of thing. We have Christians, Islam, and so Muslim. We debate these things. I said, you know, that's that's very hard to call it a coincidence. And yet, uh, so it seems designed for us, right, for our consciousness. And yet, from our perspective, it doesn't say that that requires then that there's a God who designed it that way, you know, but it's pretty startling to think what a coincidence, you know. And what group was, did you mention with Korea? HWPL is their initials. You can look them up. HWPL. They're like a world peace movement. Any other comments guys before we close? Well, mm-hmm. this was as good for you as it was for me. It was fun. Always you good. Sensei. Glad you're here. Sir. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Love it. Thank you, Sensei. And uh, thank you. I'll talk to you guys. Have a great week. Thank you. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.